Praise you, Lord. We thank you, Father, that hope for us has been secured in Jesus Christ, the second Adam. He is our covenant head. In him we have salvation. In him we have redemption from our sins. We celebrate that those who are in Christ have received eternal life, Lord, and we have seen our sins washed away in a river of Jesus' precious blood. We have realized our newness of life being resurrected from the dead when His Spirit spoke to us through His immortal, inerrant, and efficacious Word. We have seen, Lord, now by the power of Your Spirit, clearly that we were lost in our transgressions and sins without hope, godless and at enmity with You in a wicked and judgment-deserving world. But now through the Spirit proclaiming to us the truth, the blinders being removed, and your word providing for us objective truth and clarity, we confess that Christ alone is our Savior, that he has borne the payment we deserved on his broken back, his broken body and shed blood on Calvary, that he has risen again signaling victory over our greatest enemy, and he ever lives to make intercession for us, having ascended to the right hand of the Father." And now we as his ambassadors ask for strength and grace, truth and clarity to proclaim the glories of Christ and his authority over all of life, commanding the lost to turn from their sins, repent and believe, and proclaiming that his word is truth. And though the grass may flourish for a season and flowers may be impressive for a moment, when the breath of God blows across all flesh, it withers and dies, yet His Word stands forever. And upon His Word, we will stand. We confess as much. Spirit, I pray that You would open our hearts, our ears to hear, our eyes to see the glorious truths in Your Word as we turn there now. I pray that you would use this time to both glorify Christ and to equip your church to proclaim the message of the gospel. And would you, if there are any unbelievers in the sound of this message, draw them to repentance and faith, that they might bow and their tongue might confess that Christ is Lord and in Him alone is found salvation. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we have the glorious, incredible, privilege, priceless gift of gathering together as the saints of God for the joint purpose of seeking to be submitted to and proclaiming and understanding His Word, the fellowship of the saints, and in all of this, the exaltation of Christ. This morning, our message returns us to our Genesis series. If you have your Bible with, would you turn with me to Genesis 15? Our primary text today will be in Genesis 15, second portion of the chapter, verses 7 through 21. The title of this morning's message is Supernatural Ratification. You could say divine ratification. God Himself is ratifying by a ritual ceremony His covenant to provide certainty for Abram and all his lineage of His promises and what He has proclaimed through these promises unto future generations who will believe in the promise of the coming Messiah. Therefore, our aim this morning, my aim in this message is to communicate the significance of the Abrahamic covenant ratification, to communicate the significance 
of covenant ratification. More on that in a moment. Let me give you a brief background before I ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We've taken a bit of an excursus from this series, and now we're returning, so let me bring you up to speed. The last two messages we centered on Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord, speaking of Abraham, Abram, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is, God counted Abraham's belief, Abram's belief to him as righteousness. This phrase, this sentence, this verse, Genesis 15, 6, becomes absolutely central to the message of the gospel. Thus, we deemed it worthy of two messages from Romans 4, 1 through 12, and Romans 5, 1 through 5, wherein Paul expounds the significance of the grace alone faith in Jesus Christ alone gospel that goes all the way back to our forefather, Abram. Now, prior to that, we have noticed that there is a covenant theme that is beginning to unfold in the pages of Genesis. In chapter 12, the covenant is introduced. In chapter 15, as we have it today, there's further solemnization, if you will, of the covenant. So that's a bit of background. We've also noticed all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, following the fall of Adam, that there is this hope that is coming through significant sons. God is appointing certain ones. In Nehemiah, they're referred to as small m messiahs, if you will, who would bear the word of God, be prophets who would proclaim the truth to God's people. And thus, through this lineage of significant sons, the revelation of God's plan to save mankind is unfolding with more and more glory, depth, and detail. And so Abraham, Abram at this time, is a significant son. He is appointed to be a symbol, a type and shadow of one significant son to come, Jesus Christ. And so this is why he is singled out from among the nations, from Haran, from Ur, why he's given special promises, why the lineage, the promise of his lineage uh, will endure forever, and why you and I, in fact, are among the spiritual lineage, if you are a believer in this room, of Abraham himself. It all goes back to this means that God is using to reveal his salvation plan through a legacy of significant sons, from Abram and even those that preceded him. We've mentioned Shem and Seth and Adam, and then beyond Abram, you know, think of David, think of some of these prophet figures and so forth, all the way up to Jesus Christ. So that's a little background. Would you stand once more out of reverence for God's word today and listen in your hearing as the inerrant and holy word of God is declared. This is Genesis 15, 7 through 21. And he said to him, that is Yahweh, the Lord, says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, that is Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Verse 10, And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, 
and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we mentioned briefly in the introduction, Genesis 15 records the second major installment of covenant documentation to Abram and his lineage. Turn back quickly with me to Genesis 12, verse 1. This would be the first installment of covenant documentation. Let's call it covenant initiated. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This reference is um, referred to, uh, the Lord mentions this again in Genesis 15, our text today. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Covenant initiated, introduced if you will. But this question might arise, how exactly will all the families of the earth be blessed through Abraham? Well, further covenant revelation will begin to answer that question in more detail. And answers to that question how Abraham's lineage or how the nations will be blessed by the covenant made to Abraham are answered in our text today. Covenant initiated, Genesis 12. Our text today, covenant ratified. And then in a couple of chapters, we have covenant signified. A sign is revealed. That would be circumcision revealed in Genesis 17. Covenant initiated, covenant ratified, covenant signified. This is a structure and a theme that is running through this Genesis text as it pertains to Abram, the significant son, soon to be Abraham. The promises to Abram are symbolically rich as they represent gospel truths pictured through these categories, seed, land, nations, and in this uh, passage, a ratification ceremony. It was customary at the time that these words were written to solemnize important and enduring arrangements between peoples, kings, families, and the like by vow and ritual. The purpose of these events was to communicate with mutual understanding so both parties clearly understood the seriousness of a covenant arrangement. Think of a marriage. I'm sure we've all attended a marriage ceremony. A traditional marriage event ceremony has a sort of ratification ritual to it. Even today, a godly marriage ceremony retains something of this idea. Vows are exchanged in the presence of witnesses. The seriousness of the commitment is thus published 
proclaimed, evident for all to see, this lifelong promise till death do us part is made in the presence of witnesses, and the implication is that this should not be easily broken as the testimony of the event speaks to its importance. Now, at the time of covenant ratification in Abram's day, archaeological records and even cross-references in Scripture itself help to illuminate the striking account of Genesis 15. Now, on first glance, it sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? To our modern ears, what in the world is a smoking fire pot, a flaming torch passing between split animals? What is the meaning of this? Well, the purpose of these events was to communicate, as we've mentioned, with mutual understanding to Abram and his lineage, and then God himself testifying to the same, the seriousness of this covenant arrangement. It was similar to vows that are exchanged in a marriage, if you will. The record of this then in Scripture helps to give us an idea of the seriousness and the weight of the covenant. The striking account in Genesis 15 where God himself comes down or condescends to Abraham in a covenant-cutting ceremony. Our passage today establishes the pattern of covenant even reflected in Nehemiah's day. I reference this because we've been preaching out of Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah, most of chapter 9, in fact, all of it is a portion of a covenant renewal ceremony. Where did this pattern come from? Well, it, comes all the way, it goes all the way back to passages like Genesis 15. Following a covenant renewal ceremony in Nehemiah's day, the people, quote, you might remember this in 1029, Nehemiah 1029, the people, quote, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. The people swear to their own hurt to be obedient to the covenant. Now, this curse and oath that they enter into is what is pictured in these split animals. It's a parallel idea. We've noted the intent of this vow in Nehemiah's day is to invite God to be glorified in their destruction if He is not glorified in their obedience. You see, the heart of the peoples, now this communicates their seriousness to the covenant in Nehemiah's day. In entering into a curse and an oath, when they renew the covenant, they invite the Lord to be glorified in their own judgment, in their own destruction, if they do not glorify the Lord in their obedience. You see, it's to take a commitment to a level of seriousness, invoking a curse upon oneself if one should be unfaithful. Now, as we think about that, we can wrap our minds around consequences for broken promises, can't we? between humans. I mean, our minds can kind of grasp this concept, especially in the context of human affairs, like we mentioned, marriage. But notice, to think that God would swear to his own destruction and hurt, that's another category entirely. The revelation of his covenant to his own in this passage is truly staggering. How is it that God would swear to his own hurt to his own destruction, if you will, to be faithful to the covenant. That's what we will learn as we see, seek to draw uh, connections and understanding from the context of this supernaturally ratified covenant at this time. Let me give you a heading. Divine covenant ratification certifies the following. So what is made sure by this ceremony? Number one, deliverance unto promise. So this certifies that God has purposes in delivering unto promise as a category in redemptive history to Abram personally and to his lineage generally. Secondly, 
what is certified in this covenant ratification? Well, God's purpose in judgment and salvation. So the first category, 7 through 11, God's purpose in judgment and salvation would be verses 12 through 16. And then thirdly and finally this morning, oath and curse commitment. So a commitment so strong that it is bound by oath and curse. That would be verses 17 through 20. So that is what's sealed. That is what's authenticated, if you will. That is what's certified in this covenant ceremony that we see, that we hear uh, tell of in Genesis 15 today. Considering point one, divine covenant ratified, a ratification, certifying, number one, deliverance unto promise. Genesis 15, 7, he said to him, so notice the communication and the relationship. Notice the a communion, if you will, between God himself, Yahweh, and Abram. He, God, Yahweh, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess, deliverance unto promise. And in this covenant renewal, or this covenant ratification ceremony, the Lord is appealing to something prior. What we read of in Genesis 12 and Genesis 11 tells us more about. Abram used to belong to a pagan city. Presumably, he shared in its idolatrous presuppositions and worldview. He was a snare like, he was ensnared like anyone else to the sin that easily corrupts and in fact inevitably corrupts the unrepentant. But God called him out of that place, the place of idolatry, the wicked world and worldview and cultural center that was defined by worship of false gods and celebrating sin. Abram was called out of that place, delivered out of especially the soul chains that Ur and Haran represented unto a place. And so this was the land now, the promised land that he would possess, which represented God's provision, God's promises, and God's purposes for his own deliverance unto promise. So in introducing or in speaking this way, God himself is referring in this sense uh, to, to this event as a historical prologue, something in, hi- in the history of the relationship that has already taken place. This is a typical covenant pattern. It introduces, we've seen that a typical covenant in Old Testament terms introduces the great king first of all, and then secondly, the history of that great king's relationship to the lesser party. Well, it's the same here. Notice in 15.1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. The Lord introduces himself to Abram in this passage, in this event, if you will, with an I am statement. I am your shield. That is, I am your implement of war. Abram has just defeated the kings of the valley and so forth, or the uh, kings um, in, the, in the valley that had attacked him and so forth. He's delivered uh, the, his, uh, uh, his relatives, including Lot and so forth, and the king of Sodom. And he's just... Uh, demonstrated in this act his exploits in war. Nevertheless, there are certain things that Abram cannot accomplish, namely giving himself a son. And for this, he might be fearful. And he is, in fact. How is the Lord's promises going to come to pass? Sure, I can defeat these enemy armies, but it's outside of my power to bear a child. After all, my wife and I are aged. And the Lord introduces himself in this context saying, in this injunction, fear not. And then introducing himself with an I am statement, I am your shield. I am the one who will protect you from 
the depletions of age. I am the one who protect you from your enemies who would seek to snuff you out and destroy your presence in the land and so forth. Now in verse 7, the Lord introduces himself with a second I am statement. He said to him, the Lord says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I am your shield, followed by I am your deliverer, if you will. These are covenant names and statements. And this corresponds, that is, Abraham's experience corresponds to God's uh, purposes in his people as history continues to move forward. In other words, Abram's experience is a kind of prototype exodus. That is to say, just as Abram was called out of Haran and Ur of the Chaldeans into a land of promise, so Abraham's lineage and descendants we see even prophesied later in this ratification ceremony will be called out of Egypt into the promised land. But furthermore, as we studied in Nehemiah, the people of God, after disobeying and being sentenced to 70 years of exile, are called out of Babylon back into Jerusalem to rebuild. And brothers and sisters, all of this is leading up to the Son of God, the called and chosen one, the significant son, Jesus Christ. And do you remember how his life started? Early on, as when Jesus was a toddler, the enemies of God and God's people through Herod and so forth condemned the children of Bethlehem to death. So he sought refuge. He fled and was in exile, so to speak, with his parents in Egypt. Yet Matthew identifies the experience of Jesus in his incarnation with the experience of Abram and his descendants by saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Divine covenant ratification certifies God's purposes in deliverance unto promise. Now, how does this relate to us? Because if you are a saint in this room today, God has delivered you. You were once in bondage and subject to slavery, the chains of your sin. But the Lord raised up a significant son, Jesus Christ, to snap those chains by the power of his broken body and the power of his shed blood. And he delivered you from bondage unto sin and a sentence of death, hell, and destruction unto the promised land of restored relationship with him, heaven one day, even ultimately the new heavens and new earth. This is what is pictured. This is what is certified. This is what is made clear, and increasingly so, and is, sig- and, and is sealed by promise in this divine covenant ratification ceremony. Now, Abram is concerned. We have the context of historical prologue that helps to give us uh, perspective, and Abram certainly it would help as well. But Abraham nevertheless is concerned. We've seen this already. Abram says in verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So Abram is crying out. He's desperate for a word from the Lord. He needs the means of grace in order for his faith to be strengthened. So God delivers to him his promises, and what does Abraham do? He believes. Verse 6, he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. But Abraham has a second question, now asking in more faith, albeit, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So the Lord says, I will give you this land to possess. But he, Abram says, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know? Well, this is a great question, and this speaks to the means of grace. So what this 
covenant ceremony certifies is the means to grow in faith. For Abram, it was the word of God, the word of promise delivered to him. Now, if you are concerned, if you are tempted to fear, I mean, isn't this an environment that we live in today absolutely ripe for fear? How will the church survive in a day where the threat of a virus closes its doors by the edict of governor after governor and president and uh, uh, national leader and so on and so forth? I'll admit to you, I've had those concerns. There are mornings when I've woken up and thought, what will happen to me if I fall prey to this pestilence? Who will take care of my family? And that fear enters. And so my question is similar to Abram's. How am I to know that I shall possess the hope of salvation? And I need not worry what might happen to me in this life. For Abraham, it was the outstanding promise of a son in the, even though he was growing older. For us, it can be any number of things. Well, the answer is the, what was come to be known in theology as the means of grace, chiefly the Word of God. And so we return to the Word of God, proclaiming it to our souls as we read it through the week. And we return to the Word of God as we submit to its authority, as we gather before the pulpit in this place even now. But furthermore, there is baptism that God gives us. It is a covenantal uh, act or ceremony in a sense. It certifies to us, it ratifies for us, if you will, that our sins have been buried with Christ. And that the cleansing agent of His blood is sufficient to wash away our sin and the debt and judgment it incurred. And that the power of Christ is such that He will raise us from the dead unto newness of life. And that all who are in, just as all who are in Moses pass safely through the Red Sea, so all who are baptized into Christ will pass safely through the waters of judgment unto glory one day. So how do we know? We know for certain God's promises through the means that He's provided. Think of the Lord's Supper. The body and blood of Jesus Christ in two weeks, they will be represented at the Lord's table here, and we will remind our souls by this means of grace of how we know that God's promises are true. It's the authoritative proclamation of His Word. And the Lord is so gracious, He gave even more ways for Abraham to be assured. Now, kids, I have a question for you. You guys ready for a question, young people? All right. Give me or answer this question for me. And there's a couple right answers. Why did God create the stars? Anyone have any idea? Why did God create the stars? So you could find your way. I'll accept that. Give me another reason. To know his heart. I love it. To see. Did someone say that in the back? Awesome. Any others? Why did God create the stars? Those are all very good answers. I'm going to add to you guys, oh, separate the day from the night, very good. For His glory, man, what great answers, you guys. All those that I heard are in fact true, but I'm going to add one more. And for this, we turn to Genesis 15:5. He, the Lord, brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven. What did He tell him to look at? What did, that's right. And He said to him, number them, if you are able to number them, and he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Why did God make the stars? In part, to communicate to his covenant people the certainty and magnitude of his promises to future generations. The spiritual seed of Abraham's line 
has been illustrated in the heavens since creation. Since creation, God has made the vast expanse of innumerable stars to point to his people, to have an object lesson above his people every single night that demonstrates the surety and the scope, the magnitude of his promises. So this is another way that Abraham knew. The Lord took him outside and pointed to the sky and said, just like he took Noah outside and pointed to the rainbow and said, by this promise I will never flood the earth this way again. So the Lord takes Abram outside, points him upward and says, just as, as you could sooner number all these stars than number your own lineage. And the, this is the assurance of promises that I give to you. So this divine covenant ratification ceremony is signaling things to Abram and his a seed, if you will, his lineage, even us, deliverance unto promise by historical prologue, by addressing Abram's concerns, and finally, through this concept of curse and sacrifice. Now, note in verse 9 through 11, something interesting that begins to take place. So he said to him, that is God, Yahweh, says to Abram, quote, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he, Abram, brought all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What in the world is going on here? Well, if we had lived at that time, we might recognize more readily this covenantal ceremony. Basically, what Abram is setting up here is a vow ritual. And it basically communicates this. One party of the covenant walks through these split animals, and in so doing, they confess, they say, they vow that if they break the covenant, may, or if the covenant is broken, may the punishment that came upon those animals come upon them. And I suspect that Abram felt that he would be the one walking through these split pieces. Why? Because this is invariably the way that it would work in the ancient world. It was the lesser party that would submit to the greater one. And the lesser party had to follow the law of the greater or else. Or else he would be guilty of the punishment or he would be worthy of and stand in uh, at risk of the punishment of the greater party. So Abram, no, no doubt expecting this, splits these animals and lays them in this way. Now, if you notice these animals, one commentator has pointed this out that each species of clean animals for sacrifice is represented here. You might ask, I ask this question, why are these particular animals chosen? I believe one answer is because they represent a substitute sacrifice. God has Abram take a representative from every clean species of animal suitable for sacrifice that we go on to read of in Leviticus and so forth, Exodus and God's law, and has him lay them out. So what's pictured here then is curse and sacrifice. The weight of this covenant, the seriousness of this covenant will be signified by cutting. And also the provision of sacrifice is evident at this stage in this ceremony. A representative of each of the clean animals is presented while, interestingly, Abram fends off, he fights off the unclean birds of prey. Uh, kids, can you name a bird of prey that might feed on a dead animal? Who, who knows a bird of prey like that? Eagle, I will accept. No, hawk is a good example. Owl and vulture. Very good. 
You guys got some real uh, orthologists in the room? Help me out, somebody. Ornithologists in the room. Awesome. So you guys are better at remembering birds of prey than I am knowing the discipline with which you speak so eloquently. All right. So Abraham, imagine this. You're sitting out there at night and you have these dead animals and a hawk is flapping, coming down and you're out there shaking a stick at it, beating him off. An eagle swoops down. He screams and he's determined to pick up this ram and you swat him away. You throw a stone and so forth. This is interesting. Birds of prey are unclean. Birds of prey are not suitable for sacrifice. And so in this picture, we have Abram preventing the sacrifice from being stolen by that which is unclean. It's an interesting picture. It's symbol-laden, may I suggest. Now, in the course of this record right here, you might think of unclean uh, elements of this world that would threaten the covenant. But the Lord, through His appointed Son, will fend them off. Do you see the message? If we fear that the enemy will steal our hope of glory because there's so much wickedness in the world, fear not. Jesus Christ is our warrior who will fend off the unclean influences of our day as he has any day to protect the remnant and to guard his seed and to keep the sacrifice from being profane, stolen, or desecrated. And so the Lord is using Abram, even in this passage, as a dominion agent, if you will, as a significant son, to guard the purity of the sacrifices by becoming profaned by the unclean. So here we have a setup. In the context of historical prologue, Abram's concern, curse and sacrifice, God is certifying deliverance unto promise, as he has stated. This brings up major point number two. Divine covenant, ratification, certifying not just deliverance unto promise, but purpose in judgment and salvation. Notice verses 12 through 16. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, and notice this prophecy, verse 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So if we use the analogy that's gone before, the Lord says in so many words, or attaching the picture to the promise, I will fend off the vulture, the owl. What was it, kids? The hawk, the eagle. The vulture, the owl, the hawk, the eagle, that represents uh, Egypt, or that represents the uh, illegitimate inhabitants of Canaan. And even though for a time, it seems like the covenant will be affected or in jeopardy, nevertheless, though they are afflicted for 400 years, I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve. I will beat back the birds of prey, as it were. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. You see, the Lord has purposes in judgment and salvation. The Lord has glorified all the greater in the fact that the greatest empirical force at the time, Pharaoh and all his minions, kept the Hebrew Israelites under such great affliction and tyranny. And the Lord says through Moses, I will show Pharaoh my wonders. God has purposes in this time of affliction. And it's to reveal his glory through deliverance, through salvation of his people and the judgment of their oppressors. Verse 15, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age. 
and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And the Amorites, of course, are the illegitimate, wicked, idolatrous inhabitants of the promised land. But notice this section, Purposes and Judgment and Salvation, begins with two interesting details, a deep sleep and great darkness. So kids, another question for you. Can you name somebody else that fell into a deep sleep before God did something significant with him? Who else fell into a deep sleep? Adam. Very good, Calvin. That's correct. Now what happened? God put Adam into a deep sleep, and then what did he do? Created a woman. He took from Adam's side a rib, and when Adam woke up, boy, was he surprised. God had fashioned a suitable helpmeet, a woman, a compliment, a bride for him, during this time of great sleep. Sleep in this sense, the exact term as I understand it, is utilized here. As the sun goes down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. What could this signify? Abram and Adam's deep sleep represents the sovereignty of God. This covenant with Abraham, like the covenant of marriage, is the work of God alone. Hence, this is the implication. We are, in, the terms, in terms of marriage, we are not free to alter its terms, even though we are want to do so in, the, in our day and age. Or, in the case of this event, this covenant, we are not free to take credit uh, for our efforts. In other words, the term in theology is monergism, which means by the action of one. Now, this is opposed to synergism, which is the action of two can accomplish more than the sum separately. What is emphasized in these moments in covenant history where God brings a deep sleep on his symbolic significant son, what is emphasized in that type, in that picture, in that event, is that God would accomplish his work totally and completely through one significant son. Adam did not create Eve. Adam did not create anything. He was called a steward. Abram did not work for his righteousness, no, by faith he was justified, or by believing in the Lord it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram was not great because he was meritorious. He wasn't deserving of grace. If you're deserving of grace, it's no grace at all. Grace is a free gift independent of the worthiness of the recipient. Grace is a precious gift. And this is pictured even in this event where Abram falls into a deep sleep, and during this time, God is working. This faith alone gospel is pictured in this. What about the deep darkness? Can anyone think of an event involving a significant son in the future where a covenant was being ratified and great and deep darkness fell upon all who witnessed it? Can anyone think of an event like that? When was there a time where God did an amazing work and there was deep and thick darkness? Well, I submit to you, this is passage is evocative of Calvary itself. At the cross of Jesus Christ, a deep darkness, a thick darkness falls upon the land, Matthew 27, 45. And what is signified here is the weight and intensity of the covenantal moment. It's reflected in the very atmosphere as the elements of nature itself, light and darkness, if you will, that which was uh, oriented by God, or ordered by God's word in the very first day of creation, bows before the Lord. That which God created first is the first to bow, if you will, as he proceeds with a significant covenant. And this happened at this moment. And these are markers that help us understand how important it is. And it happened again when Jesus, 
the son of Abraham, the son of David, the significant son, the one prophesied, the one who would satisfy judgment and salvation in his very work on Calvary, died thousands of years later. Now, God's purposes in judgment and salvation are not only pictured by sleep and darkness, but the exodus is prophesied. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, right? So covenant ratification, it's certifying something. It's giving certainty to Abram that God has purposes in judgment and salvation. Now, when the people were suffering under Pharaoh's heavy hand, what, would, what could they cling to for hope? Well, these words right here. We often forget that when the people, the children of Israel, are suffering in Egypt for those 400-some years, that the word of God by prophecy had preceded them and Abram, their forefather, telling them exactly what would happen. Now, if you knew that God was, had purpose in your judgment or in, uh, through your salvation, even though you're in this time of affliction and in the judgment of your oppressors, how much more faith and endurance might you have? I am suspicious, I think, that there was a small group within the Israelites proper that were a remnant that actually clung to these words right here. They had been delivered to them, conveyed to them through their forefather, Abram. And though they went out day by day for that backbreaking work under the hot sun of Egypt to put bricks together and to create at Pharaoh's women will all his great you know, projects and so forth, under the whip and threat of more and more oppression, less and less food, more and more tyranny, so on and so forth, nevertheless, there were those among them who were faithful, who realized that God has purposes in affliction, in judgment and salvation, judgment of our oppressors, and salvation, deliverance of his own. Exodus was prophesied. Now, not just was this event prophesied, but also God's purposes in judgment of the inhabitants of Canaan. They shall come back here, he says, verse 16, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Has anyone ever heard a common objection? Most uh, commonly today, in our worldview, people hate what they call, quote-unquote, the God of the Old Testament, not realizing that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the revelation of our Lord is absolutely continuous from the first page of Scripture to the last page of Revelation. And what they often miss in their short-sighted judgment is His purposes in salvation and judgment. And so you'll often hear people object, oh, God was a real tyrant and, you know, slavery was endorsed by the Bible and ethnic genocide and so forth when the people came back to the land. But what is very clear here is God's right to judge and the de uh, deserving judgment of the inhabitants of the land. Having been granted 400 years to repent before the testimony of Abraham, and you better believe he existed as a light to the nations around him. That was his call according to Genesis 12. If 400 years is not enough time to repent, certainly is, the patience of the Lord will not endure forever. And at that time, he determined the iniquity of the Amorites, which is symbolic people for the rest of the people of the, of the land, is complete. And thus, when the Israelites re-enter Canaan land, there is an extraordinary judgment purpose that they are serving, in some cases to destroy every living thing of some of these enemy occupiers because of their rebellion and resistance to the Lord. And if this offends you, then you don't believe in hell, may I suggest. If this offends you, you don't believe in a just God, may I suggest. If this offends you, you're overlooking His holiness, 
and his righteousness, his right and authority to give a just penalty for sins against his holiness and character. If this offends you, you don't realize God's purposes in revealing his glory both through judgment and salvation. But as we return to God's purposes, even prophesied of old, we realize that this divine covenant ceremony illustrates to us that he has purposes in the affliction of his people, in the judgment of their enemies, and the salvation of his own. This brings up point number three, divine covenant ratification. It certifies deliverance unto promise, God's purpose and judgment and salvation. And finally, this morning, number three, an oath and curse commitment, a commitment so strong that it is sealed by an oath and a curse. First of all, notice in verse 17, something very intriguing that happens. When the sun has gone down, it was both dark and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. We've referenced this before, but it bears repeating. Notice there's two identi- or there's two um, illustrations or manifestations of God's presence. Number one, a smoking fire pot. Number two, a flaming torch. Kids have asked you this before, but what does this remind you of in the Exodus? Uh, smoke and fire. What does that remind you of in the Exodus? Do you remember? That's exactly right. Pillar of cloud by people were pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. That's correct. And then later, so this pillar of cloud was uh, the, for instance, with a Shekinah that is uh, referred to the tangible, evident presence of the Lord dwelling with His people. It would later come to rest upon the temple. And then also in Exodus 19, 18, you'll see that fire and, uh, and smoke appear on Mount Sinai. Again, a significant covenantal moment where the Word of God and His law are delivered to His significant son Moses, called forth as an agent, a prophet, to speak to the people on behalf of God. And so when God shows himself, manifests his presence among his people, in times such as these, he does so in this kind of form often, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now, I just want you to expand your imagination for a moment. I, uh, Meredith Klein wrote a, a quite a bit on some of these theophonic, he would call it, which is an adjective form of theophany. Theophany means a manifestation of God that people could actually see. And this happened in the Old Testament from time to time, a theophany. Now, imagine you're Abram and you see something. Now, I'm not sure how far apart those sacrifices were laid, but let's imagine for some reason that will soon become apparent those sacrifices are laid hundreds of yards apart, if not further, okay? And this would mean you have to run back and forth a lot to fend off the birds. But, so you have this scenario, night falls, And then whether in vision or whether Abram's woken up, we're not told, but he sees the Lord appear as it were in this manifestation. Think of that pillar of fire and that pillar of smoke. And then imagine the tower so high, it reaches up above the cloud cover, up beyond where the eye can see. Two pillars of fire and of smoke. And now imagine them walking as it were through the sacrifices that are split one on, the, uh, on one side and the other half on the other. It almost brings chills to you, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It should. It should. As you really think about the significance of this moment, imagine that. It's a chilling 
scenario, something you will probably never see again. It's an extraordinary, miraculous event that signals an absolutely historical hinge, a covenant moment, a milestone that will define the course of humanity, whether they understand and accept what's going on or whether they reject it. This is the Lord appearing in this theophonic form, passing between these pieces. Now, what does it mean to pass between these pieces? Let me give you one cross-reference. Turn to Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah 24. In the context here, there's reference to this, a covenant ceremony of the same type. I'm sorry, 34. Jeremiah 34. In Jeremiah 34, there's reference to a covenant ceremony of the same type, which will help us understand what's going on in Genesis 15. Uh, Gen- or, uh, Jeremiah 34, 18. This is a prophecy against uh, this, the disobedient. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So you see here, this is a covenant of a similar type. The people had entered into a covenant ceremony, a covenant ratification ceremony. They had made promises to the Lord, and they had said to the Lord in as many words, may I be split in two, may I be killed and destroyed, may I be made like these animals as I pass through them, should I be disobedient. And then there comes a time in their disobedience, in this particular example, the Lord says, fine, you are disobedient, I will hold you to your word, as we said in the context of Nehemiah, I will, I will hold you to your word which cried out that my glory would be preserved in your own judgment should you disobey. And now I will make you like those animals. That is, I will kill you. I will destroy you. Now, this is easier for us to understand. Why? Because it's the lesser party, the people of God, vowing to be obedient to the greater party, the Lord. But now let's return to our text. Who is passing between the pieces? Kids, is it the Lord revealed in smoke and torch? Or is it Abraham passing between the pieces? Which one? The Lord. So the sun goes down, it was dark, and behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch, again, the Lord's manifest presence revealed, passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, so the Lord himself passes between the pieces and proceeds with declaring terms, more terms of covenant. This is a stunning twist. As we mentioned, normally the lesser party would pass through the animal pieces, signifying his judgment, his punishment, if the covenant was broken. However, in this case, the greater party, God himself, declares a self-harm, or the technical term is self-maledictory oath. He will endure, that is to say, God is saying in this act, he will endure the punishment for broken covenant. May this covenant be upheld even if it demands my own death. May this covenant be upheld, even if it demands my own death. Were God's people faithful to the covenant? Answer, no. Was the covenant upheld? Yes. Are God's people going to hell? No. Therefore, what has to happen? God must take the punishment 
for us. Now we get directly to the gospel. Who was bruised for our transgression? Who was broken for our iniquities? Upon whom was the chastisement of our peace? Whose broken body is pictured in the bread? Whose shed blood is pictured in the wine at the Lord's table? It is our Lord and God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Because his people broke their vows. Because mankind cannot save himself. Because he has fallen immeasurably short of his glory. God himself upholds the covenant by taking the punishment for us. And the terms of Jesus' work on Calvary are often referenced in terms of cutting and brokenness and death and destruction and shed blood and affliction exactly for this reason. Jesus Christ was made like these animals in a sense when he was speared in his side, when he was pierced in hands and feet, when the crown of thorns was crushed into his brow and when the lashes tore apart that precious incarnate flesh of his back. God became man to fulfill Genesis 15.7 because we sinned against a holy God. This is the gospel. Final verse. Verses 19 through 21. The land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites will be Abram's and belong to his seed. This act of God's self-milledictory oath is followed by a promise. God makes a covenant saying, to your offspring I will give this land. And in the context here, the message is, No people group will stand in the way of my promises. No pagan nation, no unclean, no no one that is represented by those unclean birds, as it were, no self-made identity, no idolatrous culture, no sworn enemy of the Lord, no empirical force or power, whether they be Amorite or Pharaoh, no unrepentant sinner will prevail against the purposes of God. And this message must be amplified to the nations. You see, this message went forth right now at this time in history, in covenant history, to all these inhabitants of the land and said there will come a day when God's purposes in judgment and salvation would visit this Canaan land. And if you do not repent and swear allegiance to him and trust in his significant son who prefigures a significant son to come, you will be destroyed ultimately. And so it was. And so today the message goes forth to all nations, not just those who inhabit the Near East, the chosen land, but those who inhabit all the world. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the Lord is not content for a corner of it, but will make this world his kingdom when he inaugurates the new heavens and new earth, saturating it with his glory as the waters cover the sea. And the message to Abram is the same message we preach today. That God himself was killed for your transgressions. That Jesus Christ, God made flesh, came, dwelt among us, and took the punishment that you deserved so that the covenant might be fulfilled. And that you can be counted as seeds of Abraham, in the lineage of Abraham. That you can be blessed with the promises of glorious eternal life and citizenship in the new heavens and new earth. Your promised land is a reality because the covenant has been fulfilled in the Lord because he took its oath and curse upon himself. And this covenant is absolutely supreme. It is the only way of salvation. And the testimony is consistent from the earliest days until today and it will forever 
be the same, and it will never change. That salvation and hope are found in Christ alone. Let us close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the emphasis and the amazing contours, the theological truths, the spiritual realities, the promises eternal that are evident as we search your scriptures and find within them the riches and treasures of your nature, your character, your plan, your purposes, your salvation revealed. Give us eyes to see them. Give us a heart to be convicted according to their premises. And give us words to proclaim them, Lord, to a world that's lost and dying. Give us a message of hope for the Amorites of our day to repent and turn from their sins and place faith in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God Jesus Christ, the God-man who came in the lineage of the significant sons to satisfy the covenant. And give us great encouragement and boldness to stand in a day where the unclean birds of prey, as it were, would seek to destroy the work of Christ. We know that you will defend us and the gates of hell will not prevail against your advancing church. Remind us of these things should we fear in our day. In all of this, Lord, let your kingdom advance through your church equipped by your word. And may we stand, Lord, stronger each day, repenting of our own sins and proclaiming hope in Christ's broken body alone for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.